Well, let's uh, turn then to that portion that we read last in the Acts of the Apostles and chapter 24. And we read in verse 24, chapter 24 and verse 24, that after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. And he answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So we read in verse 25 that as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Now for a few weeks, uh, we're breaking off our studies in the Ten Commandments and in the letter to the Galatians. And We're considering some people, you'll remember, who were very famous in their day and who appear just more or less fleetingly in the pages of the New Testament. They were very famous in their day, but really it's a fact now that their only claim to fame is that they actually met this man, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Sometimes, as was the case with Gallio last Sabbath evening, It was a very fleeting meeting, and he didn't uh, sadly give Paul even an opportunity to speak. Had he done so, perhaps things might have been different, but that was God's providence. If you had told all of them that the day on which they met the apostle was the most significant day of their lives, they would have laughed in your face. For them, it was just another case, a, a routine matter to be disposed of, but the fact of the matter is that there was no more important an occasion on their lives than when they met with a messenger from God, whom God ordained to stand in front of them with, in most cases, a message to declare. And that reminds us, as I said at the outset of uh, our study on these people, Uh, we seldom consider the important events in our lives to be the really important events in our lives. We mark out certain things like births, marriages, deaths, and so on. But really the occasions on which we hear the gospel and how we respond to them are the most significant occasions in our lives. But as I said, these men were famous enough in their own day, and all their names are recorded either in secular history or you will find them in inscriptions in stone, so else either in history or archaeology. Some of their names have only come to light really since the end of the very end of the 19th century. And uh, some of their names, the existence of some of these people was disputed for long enough. But of course the Lord brings to light more and more that his word is true and reliable at all times. Now, when we're looking at these famous individuals, we're confining ourselves really to the four Roman officials who had the privilege of 
meeting the apostle. Last Lord's Day, we looked at two uh, Roman proconsuls. First of all, we saw Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul in Cyprus, and how he was wonderfully converted by the word which Paul preached. Certainly it was authenticated by a miracle, but it was the word of God, as we saw, that converted him. In the evening, we saw Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, stationed in uh, the city of Corinth, and we saw how he dealt with the Apostle Paul as well. Now, even if you're Christians and you know your Bibles quite well, it's possible that these two individuals might have been more or less unknown to you, that you hadn't given much thought to either Sergius Paulus or Gallio. But I doubt if that's true in connection with this man here. And that's because his response to Paul's message is so well known, and I'm sure you've heard sermons on it before. We're told famously that when Paul reasoned with Felix, and indeed with his wife Drusilla, who we shouldn't leave out of this, when he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, we're told that Felix was afraid, and that he answered, Go away for now, I'll call you, he said, when I have a convenient season. That response is well known. It's a very solemn response to the proclamation of the word. And, of course, I want to consider it with you. Uh, But really, I'd rather this morning uh, focus on Paul's reasoning concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And by focusing on that, and indeed the circumstances behind him appearing before Felix and his wife in the first place, will we'll lay a proper foundation for really appreciating Felix's answer, why he is afraid, and why he tells Paul to go away, and why he indicates that he does want, nevertheless, to speak to him again. So let's begin then by looking at the circumstances behind this meeting. And first of all, it's just uh, worth, um, for a little while, uh, going behind the actual process that took Paul here. Now, in some ways, it's not worth staying too long at, but in, in a few other respects, it's just worth highlighting. The fact is that Paul had been whisked away very, very quickly from Jerusalem 70 miles to Caesarea, and he had been whisked away overnight. And the reason for that is because the Jewish authorities had come to the conclusion, much as they came, to the same conclusion with the Lord himself, that they had to deal with Paul and that they had to deal with him quickly. And they plotted to take his life while he was under the supervision of a man called Lysias who was in charge of the Roman garrison stationed in Jerusalem. So he is effectively the main man stationed in Jerusalem. Paul is under his control. But a significant number of Jews, 40 of them, have decided to band together, and they covenanted together. They were that committed, would that the Lord's people were so committed as to covenant together to do what needs to be done, but they covenanted that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed this man. They devised a plot 
while Paul was uh, being transported from the garrison uh, to the Sanhedrin, that they would kill him. And they had the approval of the Sanhedrin for that. Now, Paul's nephew heard of the plot. It's an interesting thing that Paul had a sister who had a son in Jerusalem. We're told nothing else about them. But Paul's nephew heard of the plot, and he went to Lysias, the commander, and told him of the plot. Lysias was so afraid of any kind of Jewish insurrection that he decided to get rid of the case immediately and to send Paul 70 miles away to Caesarea, where the governor himself was, uh, the procurator of Judea, this man called Felix. And amazingly, he sends no less than 470 soldiers along with Paul uh, on that journey. That tells you something about uh, the fear that was in the heart of some of these Roman authorities in the fear of the Jewish insurrection, which was just there all the time. For him, this was a volatile situation. 470 men, including 70 on horseback. For one prisoner, 70 miles to Caesarea, so that the procurator Felix could hear the case. Now, the procurator was a higher official than the proconsul. He was directly accountable to the emperor himself. And that's how Paul ends up in the presence of this man called Felix. Now, Felix decides to hold a preliminary hearing. And really, we broke into the reading while that hearing was taking place. And in that hearing, it was very plain that the people who were against Paul didn't have much of a case. It was a powerful delegation that came over from Jerusalem to Caesarea to make it, and they hired this Roman orator, a very eloquent Roman orator, to make their case. People have noticed that although it was written in Greek, it has a Latin construction to it. And he presents this fanciful case full of flattery, um, flattering Felix, who was prone uh, to being flattered. But by the time Paul responds, Felix knows straight away there's no case here. After all, the case was that the man was causing a problem that he was a pestilent fellow, as the Lord Jesus had supposedly been a pestilent fellow. Paul is able to say, well, there are no real witnesses here, and uh, I have done nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all. Felix decided to postpone the case until Lysias, the man in charge of the Roman garrison, could come down from Jerusalem to present things more fully. Now, that could have been that, except it wasn't that. For some reason, and we'll see why in a minute, Felix decides um, to do something unusual and unexpected. Before Lysias arrives, he decides that he and his own wife, Drusilla, should really listen to what Paul actually has to say. And they call for Paul to be summoned into their presence. Now, there's two things I want you to note. The first is that this meeting between Felix and Drusilla, on the one hand, and Paul on the other, is not a hearing. It's, it's not a formal process of any kind at all. It's not a judicial meeting in any way. It is simply private and 
in form. That's the first thing to notice. In other words, it needn't have happened. There was nothing about Roman legal process that required them to call Paul and to speak with him. Nothing at all. But for some reason, they just wanted this to happen. They wanted to speak with him. And that takes us to the second unusual thing, which is the actual subject of discussion. It's not the case. They don't want to speak even informally about the case. We're told at the end of verse 24 that he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And this translation brings out the word the, which is important. They didn't really want to hear as such about faith in Christ or the apostles' experience or anything like that. I'm sure they may have been interested enough in that, and I'm sure perhaps Paul wove some of that into what he said, as he often usually did. You'll notice that whenever he seems to speak concerning the gospel, he does weave into it the way in which the Lord arrested himself on his journey and turned his whole life around and swung so far around that from being a, a, a persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, he becomes an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what Felix and Drusilla wanted to hear. They wanted to hear him concerning the faith in Christ. In other words, they wanted to hear about Christianity itself, or what we would call, or what the Bible calls the gospel. They wanted to hear the gospel. Now, I'm sure the Apostle Paul, in his prison cell, even though he was only remanded in custody, people had freedom of access in and out to see him. I'm sure he rejoiced to hear that these two wanted to hear the gospel from him. It's a good thing when you get a request like that from somebody, sometimes unexpected, and I think this would have been unexpected for the Apostle, very, very unexpected. And it's a good thing, of course, if, if you're asking that kind of thing yourself today, if you're here actually wanting to know about the gospel. And I'm saying that because there are different reasons why people are in church. And very often in communities where church going has been a habitual thing for many years, a good habit and a good custom, it may be the only reason for you coming to church, or you may be here to please relatives or to please parents, or even to please a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, who knows. But it's a good thing when there's a genuine request. Let me hear the gospel. Let me hear what the good news actually is. What is this faith in Jesus Christ? What is Christianity? What is this religion more than any other religion, if it is indeed something more than any other religion? Now, I said it was a, a surprising request, and I'm quite sure um, that's how it would have been for Paul. And to understand why, I think we need to do what we did last week and go into the background of these two people. We did that in connection with Sergius Paulus, and we did it in connection with Gallio. So let's do the same in connection with these two individuals, Felix and Drusilla. And for that, we do need to go into secular history a little bit, just a little bit. Now, first of all, Felix. Uh, remarkably, Felix began his life as a slave. But he ended up uh, somehow being 
freed by no less than the Emperor Claudius himself. And through the influence of his brother, he got into government, and he was unexpectedly promoted to being procurator of Judea in AD 52. He lasted seven years, which is actually quite long for a procurator of Judea. I mentioned to you before, it, it wasn't really a very popular appointment. It was a poison chalice, but he took it and he lasted nine years. That was a higher position than the proconsuls. Now, he was very unpopular amongst the Jews, even though Tertullus flatters him when he speaks on behalf of the Jewish prosecutors. He was very unpopular. One reason for that is because he was notoriously corrupt. Notoriously corrupt, notorious for bribery particularly. You'll notice that even that's recorded here because through time as he meets with Paul, he wants Paul to give him money. And if he gives him money, he'll be released. And it was well known amongst the Jewish people that the only people that stayed uh, in prison under Felix were people who couldn't pay their way out. So he was corrupt in that respect. He also was renowned for his immoral, debauched kind of life. Now, this is his third marriage. Now, I'm conscious that there are innocent circumstances which could put people into a third marriage, but that's not the case with this man. When he visited another king, uh, he was enchanted by his wife, Drusilla, and he was then instrumental in seducing her away from her husband. And on this informal occasion, she is actually with him. And I can't help but feel that that's got something to do with the fact that they want to hear him privately. I don't think it's simply him, but her too. The reason for that takes us um, to who she is. She's the daughter of a king. She's got royal blood in her veins. In fact, she's a great-granddaughter of Herod the king, uh, who was the Herod instrumental in the massacre of the innocents, as they're called in Bethlehem. She was betrothed at a very young age, but the one she was betrothed to refused to become a Jew. But at the age of 14, she was married off to a Syrian king. But like I said, while she was still effectively a, a, a young girl at 18 or so, she caught the eye of this Felix not long before this event, really. And the upshot was Felix actually sent someone on a message um, after he had seen this woman um, that she'd be far better off leaving her husband and uh, coming with herself, with himself. He had far more to offer as procurator of Judea than the present small-time king uh, that she was a wife of. For whatever reason, she believed that, she ran away, and she married Felix. A strikingly beautiful woman, so the secular historians tell us, and here she is, just around 20 years of age, married to someone who is on his third wife. Now, in a way, that's not the kind of couple uh, you would expect, perhaps, to be interested in the gospel. You wouldn't expect them to want to hear it, or maybe you wouldn't expect them to turn up in church. After all, there's a way of looking at them which would say that they had absolutely everything the world would want. Uh, they've got money, they've got youth, certainly in Drusilla's case, uh, beauty, there's fame, and there's power, and most people in the world would give their right arm to have these things. 
But the fact of the matter is we don't really know who's interested in the gospel. We never know what's behind a closed door. We sometimes think that people have it all and that they're happy and content having it all. There are seldom, really, there are very few people, I should say, who are really happy and content and who feel they have it all, especially with the passage of time. For a whole host of reasons, people can become dissatisfied and discontent, and they might be willing to hear the gospel. Interestingly, I don't know if these two would ever have gone to a synagogue to hear the gospel, ever have gone to an early church to hear the gospel, but they were certainly willing in private to hear the gospel from somebody who could share it with them. Now, that reminds us that we need to be as willing to speak to people privately as we are publicly. It is an ideal thing for you to bring someone to the house of God. It's an ideal thing if you can bring them and if they'll come. But if not, there is nothing to stop you being the mouthpiece of God towards these people and to share the gospel with them. That is effectively what the Apostle Paul is being asked to do here, to share the good news of the gospel with two people who amazingly are actually wanting to hear it. Although, as I said, you would have thought that they wouldn't. And I suppose that takes us to the question, which we can only partly answer maybe, and that is, why do we think they did want to hear it? Where did their interest actually come from? And in that connection, I think we need to notice two things. First of all, in connection with Felix, you'll notice in verse 22 that when he was listening to Paul, we're told that when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, now the way was one of the terms that people used to describe Christianity in its early days. It wasn't called Christianity. It was a, at a certain point in time that believers were first called Christians in Antioch. Prior to that, they were just called the way. They were considered Jews, but a, a different kind of Jew, so simply the way. Now here, Felix has a more accurate knowledge of the way. Where on earth did he get that? How did this Roman procurator who had been, uh, well, yes, I think born and raised, certainly raised and taught and educated and went into government in Rome, how on earth does he have a more accurate knowledge of the way? Well, again, we can underestimate people's knowledge of Christianity. Uh, we assume people are ignorant when they're not necessarily ignorant. They may know more than you realize. But it's important to remember that a person like this stationed in Caesarea, as he has been for four or five years, knows, for example, a centurion like Cornelius. And he is familiar with that centurion. He knows him well. And he, and he knew him as a God-fearing proselyte of the Jewish faith. And he now knows him as a man who has wholeheartedly come to the Lord Jesus Christ. That was recorded for us in Acts chapter 10. He knows that. He's also living in an area of the world where there has just been a huge revival. Caesarea is in Samaria, and the place, we're told, was ablaze with the gospel. That's where Philip, the evangelist, had gone when persecution scattered him there, and he preached there, and multitudes of men and women were coming to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, including soldiers in the Roman army. Now, although nothing... Felix had seen or heard had taken him to Christ. 
He wasn't converted. He, he wasn't persuaded, like I said, by anything yet that he saw or heard. The fact of the matter is that these things still had their own effect. He knew something about the faith because he knew Christians and he knew Christians who were not slow to share their faith and that makes all the difference. Now sometimes, and I've said this before and I feel it in connection with myself, sometimes you're reluctant to say something unless you can say the whole thing and unless you can get the whole message across and unless you can do justice to the whole message because sometimes you're afraid of making a mistake. You're afraid of saying the wrong thing. But you can't let fear be the most powerful motive in your life. When that happens, you bury your talent. You don't trade with it. Fear always leads to the burial of your talent. You've got to be far more willing to do good than you are fearful of doing wrong. Let's understand that. Far more willing to do good than fearful of doing wrong. Don't bury your talent. Speak and ask God to help you speak, even if you only say a little bit. Because the little bit might just be a small link in a chain that is eventually used by God to bless. Remember that. Just a seed. Scatter it. By God's grace, it may grow. A word fitly spoken. A word in season. May God make it so. And unless a person has been scunnered or really, really prejudiced against the faith, they are actually more likely to listen to you than you are to speak to them. Sadly, a lot of people, for whatever reason, maybe are scunnered or prejudiced, particularly prejudiced, even if they're not scunnered. But still, people might be far more willing to hear than you are to speak. I was reading on two separate occasions recently, two unrelated books in which a similar incident happened where a person had come to Christ and had marveled after they came to Christ that a certain number of Christians had not spoken to them about the faith. It was only after they became Christians that they realized, well, I knew that person and I knew that person and that person, and they had never spoken to me about the faith. Now that can be a convicting thing, and it ought to be a convicting thing, if we have not said something, and if we have not been willing to be a link in the chain. So the fact is that Felix is not here as an ignorant man. He already has a better knowledge of the way than a lot of the people who were present at the first hearing. So. This seems to stick in his mind. He closes the hearing, but he says, well, there's something about this man, something about this message, and I want to hear more about it. Um, when I said, you know, that people can be, we can be mistaken about people and, and how they are, that they're content and so on, what came to my mind was uh, Psalm 73. And uh, when uh, the psalmist is brought to a very difficult place in his own life because providence has come so hard and he compares himself with others which is what we're always prone to do and, and he's saying effectively well how come they don't have it so hard and he's looking around and he's more or less concluding that it's unbelievers who have, who have it good in this life and believers don't seem to 
He says, my steps were nearly slipped. My feet were almost gone. Why? Well, because, he says, I was envious. And I grudged looking at the foolish people, that's the godless people, when I perceived the fact that they are enjoying prosperity. Their strength continues firm. They're not toiled like other men, and they're not plagued like others. That's believers. Their eyes are standing out with fat. This is their good living. Um, And they have more than their hearts could wish. But you'll remember that he says that as someone whose steps had nearly slipped. And later on, he looks back in the psalm and calls himself foolish for the way in which he's been viewing things. And the devil always makes us overestimate the contentment of unbelievers in the world. don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, he strives to produce discontent in your heart. We were thinking about the importance of thankfulness and contentment recently at our Thanksgiving service, but he did the same with Eve. He produced in Eve's heart a profound sense of discontent in the midst of God's plenty. He managed to do that. And he will try to produce in your heart a sense of discontent. And he will increase the apparent contentment of the unbelieving world. Uh, I remember my father always used to say that you never know what's behind a closed door. Not so true in a house. You never know what's behind a closed door. You think there's a good job there. You think there's a stable marriage there. You think there's a happy family there. And you're totally wrong. You're totally wrong. There's nothing but disarray and disorder there, but there's a lid kept on it all. That's what I mean. We we just don't know who needs the gospel and who deep down really wants to hear it. Well, Paul is given an opportunity to share it, and of course, he's only too glad to do so. And I'm quite sure when he comes out, you know, and there's these two there, Felix and his wife, I'm sure he looks at them with pity. The remarkable thing is that um, he's the one who's got something to give them. They've actually got nothing to give him. Yes, you could say Felix has the power just to set him free. Well, that's fine, but for Paul that doesn't really matter all that much. He sees himself free even when he's in chains. And he knows fine well that that free man and free woman in front of him are bound in chains. Chains of sin, chains of condemnation, chains of judgment. They're prisoners. Prisoners of sin and death and hell. He's the free man. He's an heir of heaven. You can put a manacle around his wrist if you like. It doesn't change the fact that his spirit soars before God. That he's free in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a citizen of heaven. They don't need to pity him. He is the one who pities them. But they ask him about the faith in Christ. And he proceeds to tell them. And Luke interestingly tells us that what he says to them, you can put under three headings if you like. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. You were here just three or four weeks ago. You'll notice that these headings remind you, in a way, of um, how the Holy Spirit works when He's bringing a, a person into the kingdom. 
Um, Jesus, you'll remember, told the disciples that when they would preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit would work. And when he comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. These three things remind us in a way of these three things here. Righteousness, self-control and judgment to come. So he groups pretty much what he has to say under these great headings. First of all, righteousness. What would he say concerning that? Well, what needs to be said concerning that? That's that God is righteous and we are not. That's the fundamental problem. And of course he tells Felix how you can become righteous. And that's actually and only by faith in the man that had just been crucified 25 years ago. All this commotion about a man who was crucified 25 years before. That must have been a mystery to Felix and to other people too. What was it about this man uh, dying the way he did that seemed to fascinate people? And not just fascinate people, but to actually transform them into the kind of people that they had never been before. Well, Paul says that faith in him is what actually brings you back to God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be righteous before God. I'm sure he would have told him that that happens by imputation. Once you trust in Christ, your sins are on his account and his perfect righteousness is on your account. He is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to God but by him. That's what Felix needs to know about righteousness. We know that Felix, like many other Roman governors, procurators or prefects or whatever, that they were quite proud men as a rule. And maybe Felix thought himself quite righteous, as we all do. I mean, there's no point in thinking that only some people are self-righteous. We all are. And even as a, even as a Christian, you'll be fighting with the thing all your days long. Felix might have thought himself quite righteous. He probably had a way of justifying behavior that he himself considered sinful. But Paul makes plain that there is none righteous, no, not one. Whether he says you are a Roman, a Jew, or a Greek, there is only one way to be righteous, and that's by faith in Christ. Second, Paul reasoned about self-control, which essentially means holy living. Holy living. That kind of living that flows from faith. And again, that's bound up in Christ. Just as you can't have righteousness apart from faith in Christ, neither can you have holy living apart from faith in Christ. And I mean really holy living. I'm conscious that people can be good, better than others, moral, so on. But holy living, well, that's a different matter. That is what happens when you believe in Christ and the Spirit of Christ enters into your heart and begins a transformational work. And that transformational work consists in having dominion over sin and little by little being conformed 
into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's only consummated in glory when believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and enter into glory. Made perfect first and enter the glory afterwards. A transformation that begins on the inside and works from the inside out. That's real self-control. And of course he's speaking to people who just don't have it. And they know they don't have it, I'm sure, deep down. I'll come to that in a second. But then he speaks about the judgment to come, or the judgment about to be. There's a sense of imminence in the expression here in the Greek language. Not just a future judgment, but a judgment that is near. Now, we can be sure that Felix thought of no higher judgment seat than his own, or at least than a Roman judgment seat. I mean, if you asked him who rules over everything, he would probably answer Caesar does. The ultimate tribunal in this world, he says, is the tribunal on which Caesar sits as Lord of all. And that was the title that Caesar had taken to himself. And that was true from the beginning of the establishment of the emperor as an office. They took the title Lord. I, I don't know if we're sometimes aware of the fact that when Jesus' Lord was asserted by early Christians, they weren't just making a religious statement, they were making a political statement. And it was a statement that got them into trouble for political as well as religious reasons. They, they held that every individual and every state and every institution was to be subject to the one who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, including all the kings and the judges of the earth. They were to be wise and to be taught and to kiss the Son. Now that was indirect. In, in fact, the form of that expression, Jesus is Lord, is couched in language that is directly opposed to the emperor's claim that Caesar is Lord. But Felix would have said, well, Caesar is Lord, and there is no appeal from his tribunal. There is no higher tribunal than that. But for Paul, these tribunals didn't really matter. Now, this is not a tribunal he's in front of here. This is a personal meeting between himself and Felix and Drusilla. But even though he knows in a couple of days' time he's going to appear before Felix again with Lysias as the commander, he's not bothered. Was Paul bothered about any of these judgments? It's no, not one. Why not? Because, he said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You, Felix, you, Drusilla, and you here today, whoever you are, and me, all of us, will appear in a personal capacity before the Lord Jesus Christ. These things can sometimes seem so afar off because they're invisible. And as our faith grows cold, you are more and more taken up with what is temporal and what is seen. And you lose sight of invisible realities. But when your faith is strong, you begin to see the invisible with the clarity with which you see the visible. And our faith today ought to be so strong that this tribunal that is awaiting us should have a real effect 
upon how we live our lives day to day. You must appear there and you must give an account there because that is involved in the faith of Christ. The judgment seat is not Caesar's, Paul says, neither is it God's simply considered or simplicative. It is God in Christ. It is before that judgment seat that you will appear. How staggering that must have been to a procurator. Just two procurators before him, or maybe three, was Pontius Pilate. The man who was responsible, really, he had the responsibility for putting the Lord Jesus Christ to death. Even though the Lord had told him that you would have no power over me except it had been given you from above. But these roles are going to be powerfully reversed. Pilate is going to stand in front of Jesus. I mean, you think of that when it actually happens. That he will be dragged to the judgment seat of Christ. Felix himself will be brought and Drusilla will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul would tell him that that judgment is certain. When Paul preached to the philosophers in Athens, he told them that God has set a day or appointed a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He would tell Felix that takes a lot of courage to do that. I'll say something about that tonight, actually. But he'll also make plain to Felix that the basis of this judgment is whether or not his life has shown living faith in Christ and the works that flow from it. Not anything that he thinks is good or bad. I mean, at the end of the day, what Felix thinks is good or bad, what you think is good or bad, I think is good or bad, just doesn't matter. In that little tract I wrote recently, I try to emphasize that a lot, that we all have our ideas on what's morally good and morally bad. And people talk all the time. I don't know. It seems that people talk more and more about what's good, morally good, and um, although, they, although they sometimes say morally appropriate and morally inappropriate. But where they get their ideas on moral appropriateness and inappropriateness, I don't know. Are they culturally variable? Do they change from century to century? Do they change from decade to decade? I don't know. All I do know is that there is only one standard by which we will be judged, and it is the law of God. And the investigation on that day of judgment will be as to whether you had living faith in Jesus Christ and whether that was evidenced in your life. Did your life show that you had living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, there are some people... Um, and they would be keen to call themselves evangelical Christians who say that, oh, well, our lives, won't, all that will be asked you on that day is whether you believed in Jesus or not. Well, who says that? Who says that? Who says that that's all you're asked on the day of judgment? No idea where people get that idea from. We're told that the books are opened on that day. The book of our thoughts and words and deeds. And it will be examined as to whether there is a consistency between the claim that we were Christians and a life of faith and a life of good works. After all, the Lord Jesus made that very plain in Matthew 25, when the examination of those on his right hand and on his left 
included these words in connection with the believers. It was said, the king will say to those on his right, and come, you blessed of my father. He doesn't say because you believed. He said, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Inasmuch, he says, as you did these things to one of the least of your Christian brethren, he says, you did it to me. That's works. How else can you describe that? Certainly they are works which emanate from faith. Absolutely so. And they are works which evidence the existence of faith. Absolutely so. But they are works nonetheless. The books are opened. And no one will enter into heaven who had faith without works. And no one will enter into heaven who had works without faith. But only those who have faith demonstrated in works. The same is true with those who are condemned. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are awful words. Awful words in the sense of being awesome words. But the word awesome is a bit cheapened today and is best just to retain awful. They, they are awful. They are full of awe. You cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is it because they didn't believe? Well, I was hungry, you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Inasmuch as you did not do these things for the least of my brethren, you did not do it to me. Can Felix and Drusilla, hearing this, say, that they have a life that can pass muster with God? Can they say that they have a righteousness? Can they say that they have a self-control that enables them to stand at the judgment to come? No. And the other thing about that judgment is we're told the imminence of it. Judgment about to come. As Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. And that's a twofold reward. Rewarding the just and rewarding the unjust. I come, he says, and I come quickly. In a, in a way, it's strange 2,000 years later to think of him saying that he comes quickly. But he comes quickly in the sense that the event is of such great magnitude and it is the next great decisive intervention of God in world history to wrap things up. It's also quick because the gap between us and then is bridged by death. As the tree falls, it lies. If you die just, you'll be just on the day of judgment. If you die unjust, you'll be unjust on the day of judgment. And that's why the gap between even Felix 2,000 years ago and suppose the judgment seat of Christ is another 1,000 years in the future, there's something that eradicates that gap. It's the awesomeness of it. The way in which it brings everything to a close. And in comparison with eternity, it is indeed as nothing. That thousand years is just like a day to the Lord. Just like a day is like a thousand years. And Christ is the key to this judgment seat. He's the key to this judgment seat. 
and is the key to all that matters in life and in death. Now I want you to notice that in all this preaching we're told that Paul reasoned. In verse 25 he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and the judgment. None of it was an uncontrolled rant. None of it was a diatribe. None of it was disorganized or chaotic. It was an appeal to the mind. Yes, he was wanting to go deeper than the mind. There's no doubt about that. Every true preacher does. You'll recognize a preacher because they want to go deeper than the mind. They want to reach the will. When Paul speaks of himself as a preacher, he says, we persuade men. He knows in himself that the real persuader is the Holy Ghost himself. Let the argument be as cogent and as clear as possible. It will secure no conviction unless the Holy Spirit is arguing the case in your heart. You can bring the most gifted Christian orator in the world to present the case for Christianity before you, but it will never win the will of a sinner unless the Holy Spirit argues the case. Unless he produces a new creature that can see and that can feel as God sees and respectfully feels. But nonetheless, he persuades men. He persuades men. Paul does, and so does every preacher. But through the mind, he reasons. He doesn't harangue, he doesn't bully, and he doesn't badger. Sometimes in evangelistic campaigns, and very often when people are working with children, there are kind of pressures brought to bear on people which are just not right. They're not actually becoming of people who are working in Christ's name. You you must never force a kind of profession or an assent on anybody. We mustn't do that. It must be through the mind and the acquiescence of the mind that the heart is one. And so he reasons about the truth of these things. That reminds us that Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a rational faith. It's an evidence-based faith, even if persuasion will only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever be embarrassed about Christianity. Don't ever be embarrassed that it somehow lacks evidence or anything of that kind. Don't be afraid of Christianity. Supposing you're in the discipline of science or in the discipline of history or the discipline of law or whatever, don't be afraid of it. Don't ever be afraid of Christianity. There will be nothing uncovered to disprove its truth. Never. But I'm sure that although Paul reasoned, he did reason as a man who wanted to persuade. And he wanted to persuade as a sinner, a dying man, preaching the gospel to dying sinners. I'm sure he was careful to apply it to themselves. Now, he would do that with tact, but it was easier to do with a private audience. It's, it's cheap for a, a minister to rebuke a sin um, in someone particular under the cover of preaching it generally. If, if there is something, or... It can be the same with yourself too, but in a pulpit it's particularly cheap. If there is something to be uncovered and said, let it be done and said privately. 
But here Paul has the opportunity to speak privately to two people who know everything about each other. And I'm quite sure he would tell them, you know that you have no righteousness. You know that you have no self-control. I know, Felix, how you married Drusilla. And I know, Drusilla, how you left your husband in order to marry Felix. I know these things. You know these things. God knows these things. And I am telling you that unless you both come to faith in Christ and repentance towards God, you will not stand on the day of judgment. So I'm not talking to you, Paul says, about a philosophy of life or another idea about cosmogony or the world began. I'm not giving you a, an Eastern mysticism of some kind. What I am telling you, he says, is the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which is all wrapped up in the man that you've asked to hear about, who is the way and the truth and the life. Tonight we'll see how they responded to it. May the Lord bless her thoughts. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our God, how can any of us escape if we neglect so great a judgment, a gospel? And uh, we pray to take its own message to heart that Christ is there as a saviour and that he will receive all who come to him, and he will by no means cast them out. Give us grace to be ready to speak and to share the word as the apostle was, rejoicing that he could speak of Christ to those who were in need of Christ. Forgive us for our lips, which are too often sealed. Forgive us for our fear, which often prevails over love. Forgive our lack of zeal, in the cause that is so wonderful, a cause that will prevail one day over all others. Bless our meditation upon the truth and our singing of your praise, and bless this Sabbath day to our needy souls. In Christ's name, amen. Our last singing is in Psalm 50, and the second version of the psalm. Psalm 50 the second version, which is the long, not the long, but the regular uh, meter version. In verse 17, Psalm 50, verse 17, he says, since, Sith is just an old uh, form of since, since it is so that Thou dost hate all good instruction, and since you cast behind your back and slight my words each one, when thou a thief did see, then straight thou joinst with him in sin, and with the vile adulterers thou hast partaker been. Thy mouth to evil thou dost give, thy tongue deceit doth frame. Thou sitst and against thy brother speaks, thy mother's son to shame. These things thou wickedly hast done, and I have silent been. Thou thoughtst that I was like thyself, and did approve thy sin, but I will sharply thee reprove, and I will order right thy sins and thy transgressions in presence of thy sight. These verses, let's stand to sing them.